And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day, in fact, for Republicans, particularly two leading Republicans named Kevin McCarthy and Donald J. Trump. Why is it such a good day? There is the most favorable poll uh, that has come out in, oh, more than a year for the Republican Party and for President Trump. Now, why is that? It seems a little bit like a mystery. I mean, most of the news you get about President Trump is not about some accomplishment or some new policy. It's about him being attacked by Democrats. Could that be why the approval rating is higher? Well, the approval rating is higher even for Democrats. I mean, not higher meaning positive. Democrats still overwhelmingly disapprove of Donald Trump and the Republicans. But it's a little bit more split than it has been in the past. This is a credible poll. It is not a partisan poll. It's an Economist YouGov poll. We will get to that. We will also get to the ferocious battle, and it is ferocious, about uh, what is going on with uh, Ron DeSantis and advanced placement African-American history courses that uh, are being tested in Florida and that um, basically uh, DeSantis has wanted to throw out based upon... Uh, his anti-woke in education law. Now, I said yesterday, we spent some time on it. When you actually look at these courses that they were proposing, they weren't education. It wasn't teaching America black history. It was teaching America propaganda and anti-American propaganda and propaganda that even justified the use of violence, not in the slavery period, but today, today. And uh, we'll speak to Rich Lowry about that of the uh, National Review. He is being accused because of his support for Governor DeSantis of all kinds of horrible racist crimes by columnists in the Washington Post and the Boston Globe. We will be getting to that with, uh, with Rich Lowry coming up. But there is also continued discussion, and it's top of mind, I think, for most Americans right now, about the violence, about the mass killings, about the increase of uh, mass killings. One of the things that's interesting about that and that not many people are addressing is do you remember one of the, quote, significant accomplishments of the Biden administration was getting through a, uh, a, a big uh, bill that had some bipartisan support to tighten some restrictions on gun ownership, to make it more difficult for bad guys, like the bad guys who have stepped out in all of these most recent mass killings. And uh, that was supposed to actually reduce the level of mass slaughter. It hasn't worked. Uh, and right now there is also... A, uh, a new killing that has not gotten as much national attention because it doesn't quite reach the level. It says uh, three killed. So basically you have to have four killed for it to count as a mass killing, according to other people. But this is in Yakima, and, uh, which is a uh, town on the other side of the mountains here in the state of Washington. 
and it's a uh, an amazing story and it illustrates some of what is behind so many of these mass killings uh, for people who haven't heard about this story and unless you live in the Seattle area the chances are you haven't heard anything about it at all uh, Jared Haddock uh, 21 was believed to have been the man who shot and killed three people at a Circle K convenience store in Yakima resulting in a day-long search involving SWAT and other area police agencies. That came to an end about 2.15 yesterday afternoon when responding police found him behind target with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Yakima Police Chief Matt Murray said uh, he was pronounced dead around 3.15, that's yesterday afternoon, right after we went off the air, after receiving medical attention. Here's what police said they do know. Haddock was in the Target parking lot when he asked a woman to use her phone. The woman then handed him the phone, and she overheard him using her phone to tell his mother in the call that he had killed people. The woman then called 911. That's a smart thing to do after she got her phone back. And uh, she reported Haddock had been pacing through the parking lot. Arriving police then found him behind the store at uh, 12 North Fair Avenue with a gunshot wound. Medics tried to revive him. He later died. Haddock had a handgun and a lot of ammunition with him when police found him, the police chief said. The carnage actually began at 3 a.m. the night before. At, uh, as the suspect pulled up to the Arco AMPM Mini Mart and attempted to enter. The door was locked. So he then crossed the street to another convenience store at a gas station, Circle K. Quote, he opens the door and starts shooting these people who are getting food. The store clerk was in the back while the shooting occurred. He stayed there and called 911. The uh, suspect then stepped outside and shot and killed someone in a sport utility vehicle in the parking lot. The suspect then went across the street to his own vehicle, which had the keys locked inside. He shot the window out, entered, and drove away. Officers later found a man in a Chevrolet Tahoe driver's seat, identified in court documents as Jeffrey Hewlett, 54, with multiple gunshot wounds. Officers attempted first aid on Hewlett, but he was pronounced dead on the scene. Other officers found two people in the store who had been shot to death, the affidavit said. Uh, so uh, the score here, two people in the store, one person in the parking lot who was just sitting there, they appeared not to be people that the killer knew. Haddock's mother identified her son from the surveillance video from Circle K, and said that he was a meth user for three years and that his habit had gotten worse in the past month. She said he was acting crazy. He had gotten a black handgun and two long guns, including an AK-47 style rifle. Uh, court records show that Haddock, who's 21, remember, completed a felony diversion in 2021 for charges of possessing a stolen motor vehicle 
and for theft of a motor vehicle. So one would think that he's been a, a meth user for three years, that he had this problem with stealing vehicles. Uh, it, shouldn't there be a way not to keep law-abiding citizens away from firearms, but to keep someone who is in his teenage years and had just turned 21 uh, away from getting the kinds of guns that he used to shoot people up at a convenience store in the middle of the night. The, uh, the, the situation with all of this is, is truly bizarre and it's getting a lot of contradictory attention. The uh, Wall Street Journal has a piece uh, under the heading Spate of Mass Shootings Opens Year. Uh, mass shootings such as the two that occurred within 48 hours in California in recent days have been on the rise uh, annually in the U.S. data show, though the volume of such incidents varies from year to year. While the number of mass shootings in which at least four people die in a public setting has both risen and fallen annually over the past several years, the long-term trend shows such incidents rapidly growing, according to the Violence Project, a nonprofit research group. So why is that? Despite all of our efforts and new legislation and more, we will get to that and more on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. And on The Michael Medved Show, uh, talking about the rise in mass shootings and how anomalous that is, given the amount of anguish and activism and talk about it that uh, we have undergone in this country. Is there nothing that can be done about it? And should we be, in some senses, just accepting that this happens? It is uh, emphatically not true that it only happens in the United States. I mean, it's just not the case. But does it happen more often in the United States than in other countries? Um, most numbers show that when it comes to mass shootings, the kinds of shootings where a, 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 almost always a lone gunman comes in and just begins shooting people up to express his rage, it uh, there's a story from the... Uh, Daily Mail that looks at the Secret Service figures on this matter. And of course it's appropriate for the Secret Service to have figures on this matter because their job is to keep the President and some other top officials safe. And one of the things you want to keep them safe from is exactly this kind of thing. Half of America's mass killings they say are sparked by personal or workplace grievances. And more than 96% of the attackers have something in common. What do you think it is? 96% of attackers have something in common. They're men. 4% uh, of mass killers, we, you don't hear that much about the female mass killers. It's, it's tough to remember one recently with this deluge of horrible incidents. 
96% of the attackers are men often toting guns. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're going to be killing a bunch of people, that is much more likely to get done the, the bloody goal that you have in mind. They're often toting guns, grudges, conspiracy theories, and a mental health problem. Well, yeah, sure. Uh, that's from the uh, Daily Mail. Half of American attacks from 2016 to 2020 were sparked by personal, domestic, or workplace grievances. A new U.S. Secret Service report says that urges people to keep an eye out for potential killers. The attackers were overwhelmingly men, often with histories of mental health issues, financial problems, or domestic abuse, says the National Threat Assessment Center report. Guns were typically the weapon of choice. The report comes days after two mass shootings in California and this new mass shooting in Yakima, Washington, which we just described, took the lives of 18 people and as authorities searched for motives in the attacks, uh, both linked those, those attacks to older men with grievances. This apparently is, is different from the average. The average age is young. It's 32. And uh, the two killers most recently in California, in Half Moon Bay, he was 64. And the killer at uh, Monterey Park, California, at the dance hall during New Lunar New Year, was 74. Uh, mass shootings, they say in the Wall Street Journal, remain a small fraction of the tens of thousands of gun deaths in the year U.S. each year. But they tend to draw outsized attention because of the fear they instill that mass casualty events can occur randomly in typically safe places like schools, shopping centers, houses of worship, or nightclubs. Uh, by the way, this idea that nightclubs are as typically safe as houses of worship, uh, I'm not sure that's appropriate grouping those two things together. Uh, these shootings have resulted in 70 deaths so far this year, according to the nonprofit, uh, compared with 35 at this point a year ago. So it's double the number of deaths so far this year. The uh, gun violence archive data do include gang-related shootings and workplace incidents. The journal writes that the 66-year-old suspect in the Half Moon Bay killings worked at a farm where he fatally shot four people and previously worked at another where he killed three. The, uh, I, the captain from uh, the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office said that the attacks by Chun-Li Zhao stemmed from a workplace issue but declined to elaborate on the motive. The victims were fellow agricultural workers, he said. There are stories that he, the, uh, the killer... Uh, had previous threats that he made against people he worked with. He didn't threaten them with guns. He threatened to put a knife into the skull of one of his associates. Should that have made it more difficult for him to secure the gun that he used in these killings, killing seven people? Well, of course it should. And it's one of the reasons that if somebody actually threatens to kill you, uh, it's a good thing to report Support the individual, not for just your own personal safety, but for the safety of other people. 
Americans own more guns per capita than any other country, about 120 firearms for every 100 residents. You'll notice that's a unique feature of America, that we have more guns than people. That doesn't mean that every household has guns, because it's only a minority of households, about a third, that have firearms. But those that do own firearms often own more than one. Last year, the Supreme Court strengthened Second Amendment protections, prompting judges in lower courts to loosen some gun regulations. Mass shootings in the U.S. have surged in the decades since the 1980s, uh, which uh, four or more victims killed in a public place, not including the shooter. Uh, there isn't one particular archetype for a mass shooter, although researchers have found that they are often men who are suicidal and nurse grievances against workplaces, schools, or society. The median age of attackers who killed four or more people in a public place since 1966 is 32. In California, however, the man identified by police as the Monterey Park shooter was 72 years old and the Half Moon Bay suspect is 66. Both men purchased the weapons they used legally, according to law enforcement officials. Uh, President Biden last year signed the widest firearms legislation in decades, including requirements for background checks covering the juvenile and mental health records of gun purchasers under 21 years old. Among other steps, the federal law also proposes new penalties on straw purchases or buying a gun for someone otherwise not permitted to and uh, gun trafficking. Mr. Biden uh, yesterday urged lawmakers to ban assault weapons. Uh, most of the killing, most of the murders, a very tiny percentage of murders total in the United States involve uh, assault weapons. So the question here is that when you look at the bill that was passed, and, and again, I think it was a perfectly constructive bill, but it was limited. It talked about background checks covering the juvenile and mental health records of uh, gun purchasers under 21 years old. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, one of the um, the presidents that uh, President Trump uh, means to emulate is Grover Cleveland, who is the only uh, president we've ever had who has been voted out of the White House and then made a comeback, came back in running four years later and winning. One of the things they said about Grover Cleveland is we love him for the enemies he has made. Uh, because he had actually gone after some of the more corrupt elements of the Democratic Party when he was governor of New York. In any event, uh, is that the case for Ron DeSantis? Should you love him for the enemies he's made? There's a just a blistering column in the Boston Globe today, which is just unbelievable. It says, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' decision to ban an African-American studies course from Florida schools carries the stench of white slave owners who fought to keep those they enslaved from learning to read and write English. 
Okay, somebody who has taken this on fearlessly is Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review. He's the author of the uh, book, which is uh, still available and recommended. It is called The Case for Nationalism. Uh, Rich, um, uh, yesterday we talked a little bit about Stanley Kurtz's piece in the National Review, and you've added to that. Uh, You don't believe that uh, it's true that uh, Ron DeSantis is uh, acting exactly like a slave owner banning the enslaved from learning to read and write. Uh, What's right about what DeSantis did? So this is a a pilot AP course crafted by the College Board. We haven't seen it officially yet. They say it's proprietary material, but we've we've seen leaks from Florida Publication, and my colleague Stanley Kurtz has been all over this for months. And the the course we now know is divided into four parts. The first three parts look okay. You know, I, I'd want to go through a mag- go through it with a magnifying glass. But the fourth part deals with contemporary issues and is obviously just highly politicized. Favorable treatment of Black Lives Matter, favorable treatment of the reparations movement. Uh, all the recommended uh, writers are on the left very often on the, the far left, and w- one of the uh, segments is on black queer studies. You know, So this is importing the worst sort of corruption from the college uh, and university level and bringing it into a public high school. And DeSantis is right to say no. And it looks as though he may be um, winning this battle with the college board. The college board, even though this is supposed to be a two-year pilot program, and I believe we're just a year into it, now says, oh, we're, we're going to revise. Don't worry, we're revising. We're revising as we speak. So I think they're going to take out a lot of the left-wing stuff in the fourth quarter of this course. I still would not accept. I, I just don't think this kind of course is appropriate at the high school level. Um, I think we need to make sure everyone is learning American history, and African-American history is uh, obviously part of American history, and that should be the focus. Uh, but at the very least, he's going to, um, I, I think, improve this this course. Let me let me go see if we are on the same page here, and I think we probably are. But I uh, I had the experience as an undergraduate uh, years and years ago uh, to take uh, two semesters of it was called History 31, which was uh, a, an African American history course and one of the first times it was offered at Yale, and uh, and it was great. It was uh, extremely valuable and very popular and very challenging. And uh, something that was was worthwhile, not just for activists on the left. You're not opposed to teaching African American uh, studies as an AP course, if as an elective for high school students, are you? I am. I, I would not do it at the high school level because I, I think what we've seen from this College Board course is what you're inevitably going to get because it's a, become a politicized discipline. It doesn't mean that you know, your, your course, History 31, wasn't wonderful, and it's not possible to, treat, to teach this in a wonderful way. Um, it, just, it just doesn't happen in very many places. And what the College Board did, College Board has a bias, but you know, they're not left-wingers. But what they did, they just went to every uh, African-American studies department in the country and said, oh, how would you craft this course? And this is what they get. They get the, a very ideological approach. So if, if we're up to me, you know, if I were, I'm making the curriculum decisions in Florida, I would mandate every student demonstrate proficiency in basic American history, and then I, then I might add on electives. But I think the whole studies thing, whether it's African-American studies, women's studies, queer studies, there's always an agenda 
um, attached to it. So right, but I, see, I'd be I'm, wary I'm, of that I'm agreeing level. with you about about it being treated uh, as an elective. I mean, it should be required that people take American history and civics, know that, and then if they want to supplement it. I um I don't know does the uh does the college board right now if you want to uh do an elective for advanced placement of say British history uh or Russian yeah. history uh can you do that Don't know there there are a lot of offerings so it wouldn't surprise me if that's the case but in in theory do do I pose like really delving in um, the history of slavery from the beginning, you know, the writings and the trajectory of, of Frederick Douglass, the, de- the debate within the African-American community between radicalism and a more sort of mainstream approach. All that is, is wonderful and is really important to this country. It's just once you do, once you're saying we're doing an African-American studies course, I think you're going to get some version of what the college board produced here. So I, I, I think we're broadly on the same page. Um, it's just I, I don't like the idea of, of bringing studies as such to the high school level, if that makes sense. Well, I, again, part of what is wrong with this uh, at least tentative course outline that they have is it obviously cites with approval the work of black radicals in the 1960s who were very critical of Dr. King and thought that Dr. King was a sellout and that because of his emphasis on nonviolence and American patriotism and Christianity that he was somehow uh, less relevant and less courageous than say uh, the late Malcolm X uh, before Mm -hmm. the uh, recanting of a lot of uh, his beliefs toward the end of his life. Um, In in terms of uh, DeSantis's position and this idea that there is a another piece at the uh, Washington Post where uh, it, it talks about Florida is offering an advanced lesson in anti-blackness. It's a column by Karen Atia, And uh, she's saying last week it was revealed that the Florida Department of Education has sent a letter to the college board saying it would not adopt the board's new advanced placement African-American studies course for public schools and uh, basically suggesting that this is a, uh, a symptom of anti-blackness. Um, what's, the, uh, what's the best way for DeSantis to avoid this stigma? Well, it's very hard to avoid because people are going to accuse him of it no matter what. But their position, the position I, I've been outlining, Michael, here the last few, few minutes, so I just wouldn't do studies programs like this, is more radical than where Ron DeSantis is. What DeSantis and his folks have been very careful to say is we're rejecting this uh, curriculum as written, which clearly opens the door for the college board as they seem to be taking this opportunity now to say, you know what, we're rewriting it. So it wouldn't shock me at the end of the day they accept a version of this course with the, the last final quarter of it, uh, being being more intellectually fair, but the idea that that you object to this course and think it's biased and that makes you anti-black or you object to blackness as such is meaningless, uh, meaningless, and, and just a smear and just meant to intimidate and bully. And of course, the great thing about uh, uh, DeSantis is that he doesn't he doesn't bully easily. So um, he knew <laughs> no, he was get this kind of stuff. No, it's part of the, the origins fire. of his popularity. Uh, Rich, can I keep you for a few minutes more to try to explain a shock poll today? 
showing a big rise in favorability for Republicans, including Trump and McCarthy. You okay to talk about that? Absolutely. Okay, good. Uh, we will be right back which, with Rich Lowry, the indispensable editor of National Review, coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. This is The Michael Medved Show. terms that I find uh, endearing and occasionally usable is shock poll. When there's a poll that is just so unexpected and out of the norm, maybe it's an outlier, which is another term people use to polling, but maybe it's not. It's a very reputable polling source. It's from the Economist YouGov poll. And this is just breaking uh, today uh, from findings from the latest Economist YouGov poll suggest that it's been a good week for the Republican Party. Over the past week, net favorability, meaning the share of Americans with a favorable view minus the share with an unfavorable view, has risen six points for the Republican Party, nine points for the newly elected House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and 15 points for former Republican President Donald Trump. The rise in popularity among these two Republican politicians has been even sharper, they write, if you look back to the start of December, since the start of December, so in other words, two months, Trump's net favorability rating has risen 20 points. I'm speaking with Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review, the order of the case for nationalism, and... Uh, he has a number of great pieces, including the expurgated Declaration of Independence, having to do with Kamala Harris. And they're posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. Okay, Rich, what has President Trump been doing so right since the beginning of December that his net favorability has gone up 20 points, even among Democrats? Clearly, whatever it is, he needs to keep on doing it. Um, I don't know. This this might be an outlier. It, it might be the the fact that uh, it calmed down for a little bit for him. You know, in the immediate wake of the announcement, there was some zaniness. You know, calling for suspending the Constitution, having uh, a dinner with Kanye West and other anti-Semites. Um, so maybe that helps. And then I, I think the the Biden classified documents um, mess has to help Trump by reflection some. Um, but n not, none of this things I mentioned you'd expect to, to account for, for a 20-point uh, rise. So that seems uh, um, a little hard to believe. Well, the one thing that uh, I could think of is we've been hearing so much less about him. Uh, again, mm -hmm. we don't have a news business in America. We have a bad news business. And we've been hearing all about Joe Biden's problems and Kamala Harris's problems and even Mike Pence's problems uh, now with the... and and. For, we haven't heard that much from Trump. Could it be that he has uh, learned uh, some of the virtues and advantages of not being such a dominant fixture of the news cycle? 
No, I, I don't think he's learned that, but the phenomenon you, you outline, I think, is, is real, and it, it helps him if he, he's not a top of mind constantly. And sort of the best uh, argument he has going is, at least prior to the, the pandemic, you know, his record was much better than Joe Biden's. The economy was, was, was going well, it was good times, peace peace abroad, you know, R- Russia didn't invade anyone on his watch. Um but the the problem is is you can never just have that argument with with Trump because because he always gets in his own way and there's always other other controversies. There's a breaking news here. I'll share it with you and uh, with the audience. Uh, Mr. Trump, seventy six, who is heading into his third presidential campaign and is still under scrutiny by multiple investigators on multiple fronts, has at last become a texter. Uh, according to three people with knowledge of his new habit, his messages have recently shown up in the phones of surprised recipients, they said. Uh, this this could not go along somehow with the <laughs> the increase in favorability that he's actually joined the uh, texting era. It's uh, surprising. It took him so long to to get onto it. Sort of a natural, you know, texting is like the 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 tweeting of uh, communication, direct communication. Uh, it's a it's a natural for him. You can you do it on your phone. It's a little addictive. You don't have to worry about spelling or particular care in what you're saying. So uh, I mean, prior to this point, he's just been a, a phone guy and and a handwritten uh, sharpie note guy, which is very old school. So uh, I, I think he's he's gonna find find it hard to quit quit texting now that he's onto it. Yeah, and uh, uh, again, could it also reflect the fact that he's been uh, seeing some of the uh, the less desirable aspects of collecting paper? Uh, with Maybe. The... <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and, except the thing is that the the internet is forever. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, uh, your your internet searches, which the uh, that guy Walsha in uh, Massachusetts, who was doing all sorts of Google searches of how to dismember and uh, dispose of bodies, yeah. Uh, yeah. which can be used against us. Now, this is I'm not trying to associate that with President Trump in any way. Uh, the the state of the campaign right now in 2024, where the only uh, announced candidates are uh, are President Trump and, and maybe John Bolton, if you think he's serious about having said he will be a candidate. Uh, with with all of that, it sounds today like and yesterday that uh, Nikki Haley is getting closer to jumping in. Is she a viable contender uh, with uh, Trump and DeSantis? Yeah, I think she's she's going to get in. Um, I think she's going to have a, a tough time. Um, I, I think she has this, this statement she made about she wouldn't run if Trump r- r- uh, ran, that this could be kind of hard, hard to get around. She's going to be asked about constantly, and I don't think she has the, the political gravity of a, of a Trump or a DeSantis at the moment, so you never know. The, I mean, the cliche with someone like her is that she's she's openly, ultimately running for for Veep. Maybe that's maybe that's true, but I I take it as a given that she's going to get in. I think Pompeo is going to get in. Pence is going to get in. I assume DeSantis is going to get in. Maybe a little more question mark about him, um, but it'll, it'll be a field of, of probably eight to ten people or something like that. 
And does that make uh, Trump the odds-on favorite because he has a solid core of, say, 25, 30 percent of the party? Yeah, so, somewhere around there, maybe a little bit more. But uh, he'll, he'll have unlikely to have a majority, but likely to have can have a plurality if the field breaks the right way. And we'll just see. You know, it's very hard to convince people not to get in because you never know. People do catch fire. At the end, the trick will be convincing people to get out in, in time to make a difference rather than fragment the anti-Trump vote if, if that's the way the race is, is breaking down. But these things never, you know, it looks very much like a Trump-DeSantis race, but they never quite turn out the way you, the way you think. So you just, just need to see how they run. See how they run. And uh, they uh, are running. Uh, do, do you think it's likely that we will have the same huge amount of money raised uh, as was raised in the Trump versus Biden duel? Yeah, I mean, it'll just be it'll be massive and you know, the stakes will be huge. Say, say this every every four years, but they'll. You know, the, the swing between a second Biden term, which is almost unimaginable, you know, just kind of physically given his state, uh, and uh, a Republican with potentially uh, control of a unified Congress. I mean, that's just a huge, huge difference on, on all fronts and by all metrics. So it's, it's going to be a, a massive, massive battle. And uh, final question. Uh, have, have you decided yet, should Republicans in Arizona welcome uh, Kristen Sinema uh, into the Republican Party if she's willing to jump uh, rather than posting uh, somebody from within uh, the current Republican ranks? I think uh, they, they should run someone who's not Carrie Lake, very, very talented former newscaster, narrow loss in the gubernatorial race. It was very winnable and she just threw it away in, in the, the last week. Uh, nominate someone besides her and have a very good chance of winning that race because you have a, a democratic civil war uh, with Kristen Sinema is going to uh, she's running as independent is going to uh, maintain some grip on the de Democrats and then you're likely going to have uh, this this Democrat running against her and then you just need you know you just need a, a decent acceptable Republican and you're very likely to win it's just Arizona has had a, a lot of trouble producing that lately. Uh, that's Rich uh, Lowry. His uh, book, uh, The Case for Nationalism, is posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com. He is the editor of National Review. Uh, Godspeed, and it's great catching up with you, Rich, and uh, thank you for it. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll talk uh, a little bit about the uh, further anomalies concerning the uh, White House documents scandal, such as it is, and uh, the future of uh, any of the, the firearms controls as any kind of viable issue for either side in this greatest nation on God's green earth.